Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University's Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Columbus, Ohio. And in today's episode, which we're recording remotely on the 5th of January of 2021, I'm joined by two scholars whose work is based upon ethnographic fieldwork. Lucy Long is a folklorist and ethnomusicologist who teaches at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and she's the founder and director of the Center for Food and Culture. Inigo Sanchez Juarez is an anthropologist for the Institute of Heritage Sciences in Santiago de Compostela in Spain. He's also the principal investigator of the Sounding Out the Tourist City project, which is based in Lisbon in Portugal. Lucy and Inigo, hello, and thank you so much for joining us for this COVID conversation. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. Hello, and Happy New Year to both of you. So I've brought you both together, even though you're not exactly working in the same fields. Inigo, you're an anthropologist, and Lucy, you're a folklorist and ethnomusicologist. But you both work a lot with sound and music, and your research is based upon ethnographic field work. So I wondered, Lucy, can you uh, give us a description of ethnographic methodology in a nutshell for anybody out there who might not be so familiar with it? Well, the type of ethnographic research that I do is based very much in the humanities, and it's very important to distinguish. There is a social science approach that does differ from the humanities approach, but the humanities folklore approach is that I am observing people's behaviors, and I am talking to them about those behaviors, eliciting from them the meanings of those behaviors. So I'm collecting people's stories because I want to get individuals' interpretations of reality and what has happened. That, to me, is the essence of ethnography. And Inigo, would you say that matches up with your understanding of ethnography, or is there anything you'd like to add? No, totally. I mean, I agree with what Lucy just said. I mean, and for me also, it has also a lot to do with the close engagement with the community. For instance, before this Sounds of Tourism project that we might be able to talk about a little bit later, I've been working in the same neighborhood in Lisbon for the last 10 years. So it's this kind of this long-term engagement with the community, with the neighborhood, in order to understand, I mean, how, in this particular case, how this neighborhood has been changing in the last decade. Okay, so you just told us about doing work based in Portugal for 10 years, but you're from Spain. So could you tell us a little bit about why Portugal and about the project you were working on when COVID struck early in 2020? I came to Portugal to work on the role of sound and music in urban renewal projects. So I was working about this uh, neighborhood in the center of Lisbon, Moreria, which is kind of a famous area that uh, in 2011, uh, it began kind of a process of urban regeneration. And so I was kind of following this process and studying the use of sound and music to transform the urban image of this area. I mean, Lisbon as a capital city, I mean, it changed a lot in the last decade too. And one of the elements that uh, boost that change was tourism. And that's how it, this latest project, uh, Sounds of Tourism, 
came about. And the idea was to study, I mean, how tourism is impacting on the urban ambiences and sound ambiences of, of the city of Lisbon in the present time. I'm going to come back and ask you more about that in a minute. But Lucy, can you tell us a little bit about what you were working on when COVID struck and maybe a little more broadly about your interest in food? Because I know you've done research into lots of areas, but food is one of the big areas of research with which you're associated. Before COVID, I was in the thick of an ethnographic research project on apples in the Midwestern imagination. I had been working on this for several years. I was documenting festivals around apples. Johnny Appleseed is a big hero in the area where I live. And so there are a lot of festivals about him. And part of what I was looking at was how apples were used in this area to create a sense of connection to the place but also to create an identity for this region. So I wasn't able to attend all the festivals I had planned to. I wasn't able to go out to orchards and interview people. So, you know, that whole project just, it kind of stopped. And I was tying it in also with culinary tourism. Culinary tourism is one of my big areas of research. And... I've actually continued writing about culinary tourism, <laughs> and we're looking at where do tourists go when they can't go anywhere. And it actually goes back very much to, to my original conception of culinary tourism, which is more of an attitude than an actual activity. And so people are being culinary tourists at home much more now during COVID than they were previously. Interesting. So I'm going to come back and ask you more about your food research since the pandemic hit. But Inigo, let's get a little bit more into depth into your Sounds of Tourism project. Can you tell us some of the issues that were arising in Lisbon as it went through this process, which was geared towards attracting more tourists? Well, I think the biggest change that we experienced is that Lisbon became a very hot tourist destination. So, uh, I mean, one of the main impacts that tourism had was in the real estate business. The price of rents and, and housing increased a lot in the last five years, which meant that a lot of people were evicted from their homes and were dislocated to the suburbs of the city. And certain parts of the city became kind of thematic parks for tourist consumption. So you start having particular restaurants and food chains oriented towards catering the needs of tourists. The local shops were replaced by souvenir shops, etc. So there was a huge transformation. And, and also it's very important also to highlight that it was a very fast change. Recently, one of the things that attracted our attention and is also one of the focus of the project is that along this discourse that, okay, so the city is losing its inhabitants, its residents, its charm, it was this idea that the city was also losing its soul. And the question is, I mean, what is the soul of the city and how that soul of the city can be expressed in sonic terms? That's where our project wants to, to insist. I mean, in this idea, of, I mean, what is the impact of mass tourism in the sonic spaces of the city of Lisbon? Both in terms of how, for example, music is used to promote the city, which sounds and which music styles they are used to promote the city, or... I mean, what is the impact of this tourism on the everyday soundscapes of the city? No? In terms, for example, of noise, uh, disturbances, uh, etc. No? So, so these are some of the issues that we were kind of looking at before COVID uh, started. 
So you have this website, which is called soundsoftourism.pt, and on it you can find a number of recordings that you and your colleagues have made. Is there any recording that you would say encapsulates this idea that you have or says something that you can articulate about the sonic landscape of Lisbon pre-COVID and the soul of the city? That's a very difficult question, but it's, it's getting at the themes that you were just talking about. There are two types of recordings that uh, people can find in, the, in our website. And there's a map of Lisbon where all these recordings are located. On the one hand, there are recordings that were made by students before the COVID. And the other group of recordings are actually recordings that we made during the first lockdown. And it's a project that we call Sound Postcards from Lisbon in Times of Confinement. So in those recordings, people can hear I mean, what a tourist city without tourists sounds like. I mean, the the number one reason of complaint of tourists in, in, in Lisbon and, and in many other touristic cities is noise. And this noise comes especially from the use of uh, rental apartments. And one thing that we need to point out is that when we are traveling, we have different rhythms that the people that live in the same buildings where our apartments are located, right? So one of the main reasons of complaining in Lisbon was the noise disturbances of tourists in the apartments and also when they're going out and coming back late at night. Because at the same time, I mean, Lisbon, and as it happens in, in other Southern European cities, they are also promoted as good places for partying and for having a good time. So nightlife was also a big part of the tourist development of the city, promoting certain areas close to residential areas in the city as uh, nightlife hotspots had uh, certain problems, is, is what we uh, call in a recent article we published uh, with my colleague Daniel Paiva, we call collateral atmospheres. So we have certain atmospheres that are created for tourist consumption, nightlife districts, and then we have these collateral atmospheres that they are not produced, but they are expected, like, for example, the noise and the litter that comes after a, a night out, for example. No? So, yeah, I would say that that one of the impacts in terms of sound of of tourists in, in Lisbon was also the density. I mean, like Lisbon is a very small city with very narrow streets and it was crowded. So this mass touristification of the city center also had problems with the guide tours, the coaches, uh, the cruises, etc. So yeah, I mean, it was, we could say that, that Lisbon became an, a noisier city. How quickly did the soundscape change when COVID hit? And can you tell us a little bit about that process? The soundscape of the city changed dramatically in the moment that the planes stopped arriving to the airport. And it was a huge change in the general soundscape of the city. I mean, we have to bear in mind that Lisbon Airport is very close to the city center. It's just, I think, it's kind of 10 kilometers from the city center. So all the planes fly over the city at a very low altitude. I think it was kind of 60 movements per, per hour. So it was a lot, a lot of uh, airplanes. So that was kind of the first dramatic change. And then there was this combination that on the one hand, tourists stopped coming because the country closed down, but also the daily rhythms of the city suddenly fell silent and you start hearing different sounds that probably they were already there, but you couldn't pay attention because of the level of the noise of the traffic or the, the planes or, or the people. No? So what was your approach as a researcher during this time? I mean, tell us a little bit about how your research pivoted to now looking at a city with no tourism. For us, the consequences of the COVID were, were also an opportunity to experience the city as, as it was. I mean, we never dream about it. I, mean, I kind of see a city, I mean, without people, I mean, without uh, with all the businesses closed. I should mention that that in Lisbon at the, or in Portugal, I would say, that first lockdown was not 
as a street or as tough as, for example, it was in Spain. So we were not supposed to leave our our homes, but it was not enforced by the police. So it was possible to leave the, the house. So we took advantage of this to start kind of recording, doing this, this series of postcards in these different places that they are kind of well-known as kind of tourist attractions, you know, for example, the castle or, or the center of the city or the, the neighborhood of Alfama, place that that we identify as kind of uh, very uh, touristic and they appear in all the tourist guides. So we start going there in different moments of the day and different days just to record and film the soundscape. And I think for me, the most striking thing was the experience of walking in the city during this time, especially in the historical neighborhoods. They suffered a lot of the consequences of mass tourism, especially in the transformation of residential apartments into Airbnb apartments. So it means that with no tourists, with hotels closed, with Airbnb apartments closed, there were no people living there. And it was kind of a very haunting experience walking through Alfama, through Castello, through the old neighborhoods. So when you have cities like Lisbon, or Barcelona, or Venice, cities that they put all the energy into developing tourism as the city's economy. What happens when a tourist destination uh, stops uh, being popular? No? And we could see, I mean, what happens is that all the kind of the, um, the social networks that enrich the life of the neighborhoods, they disappeared because nobody lives there. So I think for me, that was the, the most kind of striking experience of that, those records that we did between uh, April and May 2020. I think in the map that we have in our website, there are two recordings, one pre-COVID and one post-COVID that are very uh, interesting because they were both done in the same place, which is the entrance of the neighborhood of Alfama, which is kind of a neighborhood associated with Fado, which is the music genre of, of Lisbon. No? There's a recording that, that my students did before the COVID. And if you listen to this recording, that is called Ginginia Vendors. Uh, Ginginia is a type of liquor that is very typical of Lisbon. You can hear kind of the lively uh, atmosphere of this square, which is full of outdoor tables of the Fado restaurants and cafes that they are in these very narrow streets. And if you listen to this same place during the lockdown, you will see kind of nothing. I mean, just just some neighbors walking their dogs and just a complete silence. Both of the postcards actually we were recorded was in the late afternoon, early evening, kind of 5.30, 6, uh, 6 p.m. And has it changed the ideas of yourself and your colleagues and perhaps the Lisbon residents in as much as you know about tourism? Because you were saying earlier that there was a feeling it was taking away the soul of the city. But then when there are no tourists, that also sounds quite challenging for the city. When this COVID crisis hit some people, I mean, like uh, you could read in the newspapers and, and some analysts and some academics, they were also saying, okay, well, this is kind of... Uh, an opportunity to rethink our models of society, our our economy work, how we can make our cities more sustainable after this. I mean, I think also the drama is that when you have a city like Lisbon that is so dependent on tourism, now, I mean, it's kind of very, very sad. I mean, and, and actually it was very interesting one thing when bars and restaurants resumed their activities in the June, July last year, is that 
the places that were full of people, they were the places that were located in the neighborhoods where they were still residents. And when you were walking in, in the more touristic areas, all these restaurants, they were completely empty. And if we are thinking about music as an attraction for tourists, I mean, in, in this one, we have to talk, of course, about Fado and the proliferation of Fado houses that mostly catered to a foreign audience. And what happened with Fado houses? Well, I mean, they were all begging for customers. And Lisboners, they stopped going to the Fado houses before COVID because they were very expensive places to go for dinner, to listen to some Fado. And now I think it's going to be very interesting to observe how, for example, the ecology of Fado music in Lisbon is going to transform. I know already that a few places that they had to close down a few weeks ago, there was one Casa de Fados they were offering Fado early in the morning, kind of a breakfast Fado. And I think it's going to be very interesting to observe how this new habits, these new customs that we are kind of uh, incorporating, they're going to affect uh, the cultural and the musical practices too. I'm going to come back and ask you more about how things have developed since that initial lockdown a bit later on, but I want to come to Lucy now. Lucy, the research that you were doing pre-COVID came to an end when COVID hit because of difficulties in actually carrying out ethnographic field work. So what caught your attention then instead? Fairly soon after things began shutting down in the U.S., the American food media started promoting comfort food, you know, recipes for comfort food. And I had co-edited a volume on, on comfort food in 2017, so this was very much on my radar. And then there was a whole flurry of social media about comfort food. Comfort food is generally defined as food that is eaten to relieve stress. However, it reflects a very American attitude towards food. There's a morality around food, and that morality is attached to what foods will make you fat, basically, and what foods are good for you in terms of your physical image. You know, so that in order to be a moral and good person, you have to show that you have an excuse to eat these bad foods that are very indulgent or fattening. When we look at the history of the concept, it was introduced in 1966 by an American psychologist, Dr. Joyce Brothers, and she used it to refer to why Americans were eating so much fattening food. And she said that Americans were eating this to relieve stress. That ended up then being used, I think it was in the 80s, by a food writer to refer to all of Southern cooking, <laughs> which is known for, you know, for lots of deep frying, lots of very sugary, you know, very fattening desserts. And then that started being used by people without really thinking about what it meant, you know, because shouldn't all food be comforting? in some way. <laughs> yeah, and I'd have to say, as somebody who's kind of like picky about what she eats, and somebody who keeps quite an eye on her figure, the food that you're describing does not sound comforting to me. <laughs> and, you know, part of the idea of it is that Americans in particular feel like they have to have an excuse to eat those kinds of foods because they would not be good for our figure. <laughs> or, you know, they would make us, make us feel lazy so we have to use this excuse of, oh, I'm stressed, I'm depressed. That means I can eat this food now, and it's going to make me feel better. 
So there, there's that morality attached to, the, to food. And then it's turned into a marketing category also. That category is based very much on stereotypes of what is American food, what our childhoods were all supposed to be like. And so the things that were being promoted as comfort food when the pandemic started, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, that's not comforting to me. That doesn't evoke my childhood or my childhood was miserable. I'm not comforted by food that reminds me of, of that childhood. And part of what I noticed, too, there was an article in The New Yorker, and it was comfort foods of famous chefs. And the recipes in there were calling for what most people would consider to be very specialized ingredients and cooking techniques that not everyone would have mastered. And so it struck me that, first of all, there can be a lot of discomfort around comfort food itself. But also, if we really want to look at what foods comfort which people, we have to ask every individual, what is their personal history with food? So there's what I like to refer to as culinary relativism <laughs> that we start seeing in comfort food as people actually approach it, not as the food industry is treating it. Initially, I was just kind of informally talking to people and observing, you know, these are the things that I'm finding discomforting about food, going shopping. That was just kind of a chore previously, and suddenly this was a huge source of anxiety. You know, so I started observing that. And then the kinds of stresses that the pandemic was causing, these were not temporary depression. <laughs> this wasn't just a feeling of, oh, you know, I'm left out today or I'm feeling stressed. These were, I refer to them as existential anxieties. All of a sudden, people's livelihoods were completely ended. Their plans for the future, professional as well as personal plans, were suddenly ripped out from under them, and people had no idea what the future was going to hold for them. That's not the kind of stress that can be relieved simply by eating a muffin or donut. So I started noticing that, that people were using food to address some of those kinds of anxieties. And I was doing it myself, too. One of the things that really struck me, because of the shutdowns, we were not supposed to be going anywhere that we didn't have to, and... It was okay to go to the supermarket, but we didn't really know if it was safe or not. This was at the beginning when we had no idea exactly how this virus was being spread. We didn't really know what precautions we needed to take. So a lot of people just stopped shopping completely. One of the first things I did was I went through my freezer, refrigerator, and cupboards just to see exactly what I had discovered that I could probably feed myself for the next three years. <laughs> so as long as I didn't need any fresh greens, <laughs> I could probably get by. So when I was doing that, there was discomfort first in that, oh, you know, do I have enough storage space? I don't have fresh lettuce and things like that that I'm usually consuming. However, as I was cleaning and organizing things, I started finding that this gave me a sense of comfort, and I felt like I have control over what I can make for my meals, what I can consume. I don't have to go out and venture to, to the supermarket. It gave me a sense of control within this very chaotic moment in which none of us 
felt like we had any control <laughs> over anything. That was comforting. And it was comfort on that deeper level of sort of existential anxieties. I then developed an oral history project on finding comfort and discomfort through foodways. All the emphasis had been on comfort food. We wanted to shift from that to food ways, which would be all the different practices and activities around food, partly to get people thinking. I'd mentioned going shopping, you know, going to the supermarket. You know, most of us thought of that just as a chore. All of a sudden we realized that was actually a social occasion. <laughs> this was a way that people could get out of the house. It was a part of a routine that made them feel like there's a logical sequence to their days. There's a reasonable passing of time. It connected them to the food supply chain. It connected them to all this stuff that we really were not aware of. You know, so part of what strikes me about this, and this is very relevant to Inigo's project on the soundscapes, the pandemic to me made us realize that there were these activities that were very, very significant in our lives but they had gotten so overshadowed and kind of hidden by other stuff. So with the Soundscapes Project, the sounds of tourism were hiding the sounds of nature in many ways. And with our project on comfort food, I was finding just kind of the busyness of life and the emphasis in our culture on products rather than processes, but also on for food to be considered significant, we think of it as it has to be kind of gourmet and really special. So the everyday kinds of foods, the everyday activities around food, we had forgotten about the possibility of those carrying meaning and being meaningful for us. And so all of a sudden with the pandemic, we're realizing, oh, you know, taking out the trash. This could be something significant. This is when I go out to the street. I get to see the neighbors. To me, the pandemic is really highlighting the significance, the potential meaningfulness of a lot of these everyday kinds of activities that were hidden for various reasons. As with the Sounds of Tourism project, you have created an online exhibit and it's at comfortfoodwaysexhibit.wordpress.com. And in collecting these stories, I'm just curious, is there one particular standout one that you want to draw our attention to? You know, some of the assumptions that I think a lot of us would make were that certain people would be able to find comfort more easily than other types of people, given you know, various identities. So I was actually very surprised by a woman, a woman contacted me and said that she was physically disabled and therefore unable to, in normal circumstances, she was unable to go to restaurants. So she had always felt that she was left out of socializing with her friends. And now with the pandemic, suddenly no one could go to restaurants and there was a lot of virtual dining and people talking about eating, that she can now participate in this through social media and through technology. So she felt that suddenly the playing field had been equalized and she could now be included. Everyone else was in the same boat that she had always been in. Someone else, she was upper class, 
you know, she was able to have groceries brought and restaurant meals delivered, and she didn't have all the anxieties of economic issues. However, she felt very, very isolated because she was by herself in this big house, and she wasn't in a neighborhood where where she knew people, and, and she said it was incredibly lonely. And I compare that with some individuals who said they did not have a lot of money and they were in living situations which would normally be thought of as not the ones that we aspire to, <laughs> you know, where there'd be a lot of family members in one home and very few rooms. And they said that for them, it was a time of reconnecting with their families and everyone coming together. They were all having meals together whereas before they, they hadn't had time to. And it was a very reassuring time to them. That was unexpected. You know, it was kind of throwing some of our expectations, <laughs> challenging. I speak as someone who has had a history of eating disorders, and they're quite long in the past, but the fact that they are in the past has been challenged by this COVID period in a way that I never expected to have to deal with again. Have you come across anybody in your interviews that has found this challenging in terms of food because of anything like that? Definitely. And I should mention, I was able to get funding to pay very small honorariums to five researchers. They were either recent graduate students or current graduate students. Two of them talked about that a lot because they personally had eating issues and they were very aware during COVID that isolation exacerbated the eating disorders. And yeah, so there, there was definitely an impact. And it was, I think, much harder for people to find comfort when they had issues like that. Right. And actually going back to what you were talking about earlier in your own situation, where you felt the sense of control in being able to find everything in your cupboards and put it into some kind of order. I think a lot of eating disorders are associated in some way with trying to maintain a sense of control or being out of control. So it's kind of interesting how that can be a comfort or not. Inigo, what about you? Did you find yourself finding comfort in food in ways that surprised you? No, I mean, I'm always eating and cooking. I love it. So, I mean, in, in my case, no, COVID uh, confinement or lockdowns, they, they haven't changed a lot my attitude towards food or my routines. But I found, I mean, Lucy's work fascinating because there's such an interesting connection between the, the value that we gave to food during these harsh times of, uh, of confinement and, and, and lockdown. For example, in Santiago also, we've been, I think it was more than one month and a half almost two months with all restaurants and bars closed and people were kind of craving just to go out to the streets, to drink a coffee, to eat together. And I think also this idea of the comfort and comforting food that uh, Lucy was talking about, I think also has to do a lot with the social aspects of eating together. No? And I think also was one of the things that we lost it because of the pandemic, right? One of the things I find really difficult is that I'm somebody who likes to work when there's noise around me. So I quite often, if I needed to read something, I'd go to a cafe so that there'd be noise in the background, which cut down the internal chatter in my mind and helped me concentrate. And I keep trying to find ways to kind of fabricate it in other contexts. But now that it's got so cold, I mean, we're recording this in January, so I can't go out and sit in the park anymore. So there are all these things that you didn't realize were so important and comforting. I'm curious to know how it's helped you both 
if it's helped you both, to have relevant research to do during these months, because a lot of working people have just found their work has changed in that they're working from home, they're working remotely, but otherwise it's much the same, or there are people who have lost their jobs or haven't been able to find jobs. But you have both been able to pivot your area of expertise into something that's very relevant to these times. And I'm curious if you think that that has made life easier for you personally, as well as hopefully professionally during this time. Lucy, I'll put that to you first. I think the project that I've been working on, finding comfort and discomfort through foodways, it ended up giving me a lot of hope about humankind because I started hearing from people. Initially, you know, there was a lot of very frightening stuff. Uh, food chain supplies were breaking down and there was a lot of discomfort around how do I get food? How do I not snack too much and gain the COVID-19 that people were joking about? Gain the COVID-19 pounds, right? Yes, yes. And then as time went on, some individuals started working towards trying to make the food supply chain more equitable. You know, so now that we were aware that certain populations are so vulnerable, now we could try to make sure that they were being treated better. Nobody had ever thought of people stocking grocery store shelves as particularly important before. And now all of a sudden they were essential workers. They were putting their lives on the line for us. So there started being pressure. Okay, let's pay these people better. Let's make sure they do have health insurance. There was actually a lot of activism in that way. A lot of people were contributing to food pantries and started working with kitchens that were providing food and meals. And part of what I started seeing, people were finding these strategies to deal with the discomforts that they were seeing, and they were finding ways to comfort themselves that way by comforting other people. So there's this kind of an outpouring of neighbors shopping for other people, people making meals, and leaving them on porches for people that they know might be vulnerable or just might be isolated. I don't want to sound, you know, Pollyannish about this, <laughs> you know, because ultimately when people are comforting other people, part of what they're doing is they make themselves feel like they can be significant. They can do things that actually have a positive effect on the world. And that's comforting on this much deeper level. Inigo mentioned that the pandemic really highlights some of the inequalities and you know now that we're more aware of these issues i'm hoping that we can continue working on them people will continue going to farmers markets more you know they were afraid to go to supermarkets so as soon as it was warm enough for farmers markets to start up they started doing very very well csa's community supported agriculture those have been flourishing that's a very good way to support the, the small farmers. So there are things like that that are coming out of the pandemic. Inigo, I, I wanted to put the same question to you. Have you found it personally useful to be able to do relevant research at this time, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, personally useful, but, but I think my lifestyle didn't change so much because of the pandemic. I was used to work at home a lot. Our uh, work as an academic uh, 
when we are not in, in the field, it's a very solitary work. We need to, to confine ourselves to, to do the writing, to do the other tasks that we are supposed to do. So so I wouldn't say that in my case, the pandemic changed a lot. I mean, it's true that engaging in, in that part of the sound podcast was a very interesting uh, and was very, uh, I mean, it gave me a purpose of, of doing things. I mean, during a, a moment that still is very misty because, I mean, you can't actually plan things. So, yeah, I, I found comforting. I mean, I, I found having a, a job to do, I, I found that, that it was uh, comforting. And in terms of the research that you were doing, have you seen any reasons to be hopeful about the city of Lisbon and the tourist industry? Um, no, I'm afraid that I'm not so optimistic as uh, Lucy is. Although I agree with her that I think that the change that we might see out of this uh, crisis, I think it's a change that is going to operate at a very local and very community level. But I have the feeling that not only Lisbon, but I think uh, most of the cities are going to repeat the same mistakes that led to the previous crisis and, and, and also uh, create the, the conditions for this crisis of the COVID being kind of harder than it was supposed to be. For example, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, Lisbon City Council approved two huge hotel developments in the center of the city, no? which means that they are kind of reproducing the same model of, of city development. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not very optimistic about uh, what's going to, to happen in the future. Okay. Okay. I hate to not end on an optimistic note. Is there anything that you'd like to say that I didn't give you the chance to or anything you'd like to mention to each other? I have to agree with Inigo. Unfortunately, most of the people who are dealing with the economy are going to continue to focus just on the economic aspects of tourism and of sustainability. We can't isolate any one aspect of life. Everything is connected. So if the economy is going to rebound, it has to be done so in a way that is connected to the local environment and to the local society and culture. So if we can keep pushing at people to recognize the connections, some of which were disrupted by COVID, to get people to recognize that, I think maybe there can be some positive changes. No, and I, and I think just to finish with a, with a positive note, I, I don't want to be the, the pessimistic of the conversation. I mean, I think all, all, all the situation we're going through, they made made us more aware about what also is our role as researchers, as academics in our society. No? And I don't think that we can make kind of a change in a, in a very large scale, but I think we can have an impact in the local level, no? in our communities. And I think that's at least where I'm trying to put uh, uh, also my energies. So I mean, I'm not trying to, to aim for a big change, but maybe just for smaller changes in our surroundings. Well, um, yeah. That is sort of a little bit optimistic <laughs> and a little bit activist as well. So listen, thank you so much, Lucy Long and Inigo sanchez Juarez, for taking part in this COVID conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Rachel, for creating this space. It was a very interesting conversation and it was also very nice to meet you, Lucy. Again, my guests today were Lucy Long, who's a folklorist and ethnomusicologist who teaches at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and Inigo sanchez Fuaras, who's an anthropologist based in Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And you can find out more about the work of both of my guests in the notes which accompany this podcast. 
COVID Conversations Life in a Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme Grant Initiative. A great many people have been instrumental in making this series happen. Too many to name here, but as always, I'd like to express special thanks to Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Patterson, and Nick Spitulski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you for listening. Thank you.